you go with me to Exodus uh, chapter 20, as we have been there the past um, two weeks, and we'll be there again next week, this morning, one more time, we're going to hear the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Here we go. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say... Thanks be to God. On this month-long journey through the Ten Commandments, last week we talked about those commandments that relate specifically to our relationship with God. In our first week we saw how we can only read the Ten Commandments through the lens of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to spend some time with these commandments that inform the way we relate to one another. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. As a child of the 90s and early 2000s, I was the prime demographic for some of the most popular movies to come out during those years, particularly the comedies, those slapstick comedies that came out when Adam Sandler came on the scene and Jim Carrey. Uh, But probably most importantly for my teenage years were the comedies of Will Ferrell. I was a big Saturday Night Live fan with Will Ferrell's skits, and I could quote just about every line from Night of the Roxbury and Anchorman. However, it it was one of his less popular movies that ended up having a big moment amongst my friend group, particularly my Christian friends. In 2008, he released the film Semi-Pro that followed the shenanigans of a semi-professional basketball player and team owner, Jackie Moon. This was not one of his better movies. This is not my recommendation nor endorsement. But there was one thing about this movie that will stick with me for forever. Um, There was a, a life motto that the character Jackie Moon had, and he said, regardless of anything else, there's only one rule on his team, E-L-E, everybody love everybody. He had it as a, as a poster on the wall in the locker room. And he said, ELE, it's, it's more than just a basketball team. It's a lifestyle. For months after that movie came out, we'd walk around Huntington College in the green and across campus yelling at each other, ELE. It became a sort of greeting or salutation. We'd say, everybody love everybody. And for like seven or eight months, that was all we would say to talk to each other. And I was not around 
for the Larry Norman Jesus movement of the 1960s. I, I have no recollection of any of the secular manifestations of the peace and love and hippies. Um, but there was an overwhelming sentiment in my late teenage and early 20s that I wanted to be a part of a movement where everybody loved everybody. The worship bands that we would listen to, um, they would have hearts on their album artwork. I wore so much tie-dye in college, I don't think I had a solid color shirt. I had hair, that I, did, I cut off 10 inches for locks of love. I looked like I, I was a hippie, um, but it's because every time I would leave somebody or they would leave me, um, we'd always say, love you. Love was just like, in, it was, love was in the air kind of deal, right? And it was during those years that Romans chapter 12 became such an important part of the Bible for me. I believe Romans chapter 12 is probably the most practical selection of scripture that can help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Here's what the apostle tells to that early church in Rome. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a lower position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As I read those words, even this morning, I'm inspired. Every time I read that chapter, I am inspired to do good and to repent of those times when I haven't been loving of everyone. But I think where I often go awry is when I allow myself to believe that my infatuation with this text is something new or even to allow myself to believe that this idea of loving others didn't show up in the world until the New Testament. Paul was able to write this to the church in Rome because he had a relationship and an encounter with Jesus Christ, but also because his whole life he'd heard the Ten Commandments. He was a faithful Jewish man until his conversion. He knew the law. He knew the rules. And he knew that love is baked into the very fabric of this foundational set of rules. It's why Jesus summarized all the commandments by saying this, we are to love God, which we talked about last week, those first three commandments, and why he says it is equally important to love your neighbor as yourself. Theologian George Stroop says this, Jesus seems to recognize that the scribe might be asking not only which is the first in the numerical order of the commandments, but also which is the most important. And so quoting Leviticus 19, Jesus says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One cannot love God without also loving one's neighbor. And one cannot love one's neighbor unless that love is rooted in one's love of God. Loving God and loving neighbor are two realities that are inextricably linked together. 
They cannot be separated. Which says something about our faith, doesn't it? We often think of our faith journeys as just that, ours. As if it's some individual personal relationship that our individual experiences uh, with God are the ultimate expression of faith. That our evening prayers and our individual Bible studies and the beliefs each of us have for ourselves are the only true way to understand what it means to follow Christ. But if our ability to love our neighbor can impact our ability to love God, then faith is not limited to individual experience. Faith is an interpersonal relationship. You cannot faith on your own. How you treat others is a reflection of how you understand your relationship with God. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. And if our faith is interpersonal, that also means that our sins are as well. Like this misguided notion that belief is some private affair. We also sometimes think that our sins are private matters. But nothing could be further from the truth. Sin is not confined to some dark back alley or to our own homes when no one is looking. No, sins are some of the most public actions because they're not only the times where we make personal mistakes when nobody is around, they are equally the moments when we do something to harm our relationship with others. Sin is when we act unloving to God and to others. When we act unloving to our neighbors. When we refuse to help those in need when we benefit from others' misfortunes, when we take revenge against a person, even though, though the Bible tells us, do not repay anyone evil for evil. This idea of faith being a relational matter is the heart of commandments five through nine. In each of these commandments, there are instructions about how to stay in right relationship with others. We often think of the Ten Commandments as ways to just make ourselves better people. If I do these seven easy steps, follow these Ten Commandments, then I'll be better by myself. But their intent is not only about personal holiness, but equally about a per how a person can be holy in relationship with other people. Sometimes these commandments are easy and obvious to keep. And other times, we have to struggle with them. We have to ask ourselves, how can this be lived out in my life while not causing harm to myself or anyone else? For example, commandment number five, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We often think of this as children should obey their parents, right? I'm trying to get that through to August, right? You're supposed to listen to me. I'm in charge. I'm the dad. But... What about those who have complicated relationships with their parents? What about those with absent parents or parents they never knew? What does it mean to honor a parent if you know the decisions they are making are harming themselves or causing harm to others around them? According to the theologian Craig Cocker, the goal of this commandment was to protect the community interest by creating an ethos in which the uninterrupted flow of tradition between the generations is ensured. Essentially, these commandments were written down to, to protect the culture of the Hebrew people. It was less about just do your chores before bed and more about, hey, people are marrying people from other tribes. Apostasy was a big problem in the Old Testament. People are worshiping other gods. 
One of the ways you can honor your parents is to hold on to the traditions they passed down to you. Don't let our religion go out the window because you've given up. Honor your parents by letting this legacy live on. To protect one another, they had to protect their traditions in order to maintain their identity. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. It's pretty obvious, right? That's how it helps people maintain right relationships. Don't murder each other. God cares about all life. And although the Israelites were no strangers to war or capital punishment, they did recognize that God's desire was not for senseless violence. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. This was a statement about protecting the family integrity and most importantly about the legitimacy of children and the proper heir to inherit the father's estate. Because it's kind of hard to square that David and Solomon are two of the most revered people in Israelite history and one of the laws says, do not commit adultery. If you know anything about David and Solomon, they had a whole lot of wives and even more concubines. And so for us to say, do not commit adultery, and then to hold up these two people, how do these things reconcile to one another? For them, adultery was more a perversion of the established order of inheritance. But today, we take Jesus' direction on these things. We understand God's true desire regarding adultery. God is concerned with our hearts and how the corruption of our heart can corrupt our relationship with our significant other and with the rest of the world. Which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Once again, pretty obvious. It's an easy guide to make a right relationship with somebody else. Don't steal from them. I do not believe that my friend in the second grade was loving me when he stole my Stretch Armstrong doll. Y'all remember those? I used to love that thing. Commandment number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This was mostly a provision about being a witness in a trial. It was about how to make sure civil harmony was ensured so that a person could know if they were brought up against the, to the authorities on charges of illegal activity, that any witness brought against them would be honest and fair. We preserve this same instruction today. If you lie in a courtroom, it's perjury. It's a punishable offense. It was important for them to maintain for their society trustworthy people. Each of these commandments they're not simply rules for how to be a better person or how to enhance your own individual spirituality. They were instructions for how a person could be in relationship with other people. They were guides for how everybody can love everybody. But like most things in life, our humanity got in the way of God's desire. The religious leaders took these rules to various extremes and implemented them in ways that completely missed the spirit of God's intention, often citing them as justification for their unloving actions. Nowhere in the Bible is this more evident than in John chapter 8. That chapter begins with Jesus coming back from the Mount of Olives, and at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. As he sat down to teach them, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. Essentially, uh, these people know the rules and they're the people who know the rules the best. And they brought a rule breaker before Jesus to try to trap him. 
They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands each of us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down, wrote in the ground, and at this, those who heard it began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus never claimed that this woman had not broken the rules. He didn't even tell her accusers that they were wrong to accuse her of breaking the rules. He simply showed them a more loving way to bridge the gap between the law and grace. He was able to show this woman that her sins do not have to define her. They are not her end. And show those that stood accusing that they themselves are not blameless. And that given the opportunity, any one of them could be stoned for their crimes as well. Friends, there are times where we are caught in our sin like the woman. There are moments where we have messed up and it feels like the world is ready to tear us down. Like we knew the rules, but we couldn't help breaking them anyway. But the good news is that Jesus sees our sins and tells us they do not have to define us. That our mistakes are not our endings. Jesus offers us forgiveness when we fail and whenever we're not able to live up to who God has called us to be. However, I'd venture a guess that more often we are like the people standing in accusation of others, right? With rocks in our hands and social media posts ready to throw out into the world to tear others down. It may be true that somebody else has done something to jeopardize their perfection, but how big is the log in your own eye? There's a phrase that Lovett Weems taught me when I was at school in Washington, D.C., that has come to define my ultimate goals as a Christian over these past six years. I've mentioned it before, and I know that because afterwards, Cindy Brooks found me to tell me uh, a mention of her fellow Mississippian, Dr. Weems. I know we got some other Mississippians. But honestly, I'll bring it up in any sermon I can from now on because I believe it's that important. I believe there might not be any more important thing that I can ever say to you as your pastor from this pulpit. And as I go to have surgery tomorrow, I'm aware that the next few weeks, I won't be able to say much, if anything at all. And Brianna is really excited about that. (laughs) Two weeks of vocal rest? Yes, sign her up. And so the last thing I'll say to you this morning, and the last thing for just a few weeks, is this. In all things, I pray we will all have a presumption of grace. I believe it is only by a presumption of grace that we can truly love everyone. It is only by a presumption of grace 
that we can internalize the spirit of the Ten Commandments. It is only by a presumption of grace that our love can be sincere and that we can be devoted to one another in love. I cannot bless those who persecute me if I don't lead my life with grace. We will never live in harmony with one another without God's grace. Without a presumption of grace, we will always end up repaying evil for evil. And we will be unable to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. How can we all live at peace with everybody if not for and by the grace of God? It is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we will not be overcome by evil, but that we will overcome evil with good. So what does that mean for us in a practical sense? It means that you offer grace instead of offering accusation. Anytime you think somebody has done something to cause you a personal affront, it doesn't mean that they cut you off of the road intentionally. Maybe they just didn't see you there and it was an honest accident. Did the person intentionally respond to your email in an unkind tone? Or does email lose all ability to communicate personal inflection? And they had no idea they were coming off rude. Is your parent really trying to ruin your life? Or do they just love you and they're trying to do the best they can, but we're not perfect? If we lead our lives with a presumption of grace, then we will not assume the worst about the world. We will not see others as our enemies, but instead as imperfect people whom we are called to love. We can only love our neighbor as ourselves if we stop treating everybody as if they are wrong because they don't agree with us or as if their decisions are attacks on our sensibilities. It is only through a presumption of grace that we can admit too that we are not perfect, that we have failed to be an obedient church, that we have broken God's law, that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But because of Jesus Christ, we do not have to fear our failures. Because in Christ, we are forgiven. So we can own up to the times when, when we have not been loving. What ways today can you admit to yourself and maybe to others the times where you did not live up to the spirit of these laws? And can you see how those moments don't just harm you or your own individual relationship with God, but they can cause harm to your relationship with others? In fact, sometimes our sins actually harm others. My prayer is that each one of us will know that God loves us and that we will be rooted in the love of God. And because of that love, we will be able to see the world and everybody in it through a presumption of grace. And that one day, maybe, it will cause everybody to love everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.